Good evening or good afternoon or whatever time it is where you are listening to this and welcome to <laughs> Tales in Our Times. I'm Janet and obviously I don't know what day or night it is. Carry on. <laughs> yeah, welcome to Tales About Times. I'm George. <laughs> what time is it? Good no. morning or good afternoon or good day, milady, to you. How you doing, good- mum? You all right? <laughs> I didn't realise that was going to go that way. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm feeling fine. You know, (laughs) I think one of the great things about podcasts is you can listen to them whenever it suits you uh, on your time frame. And that's awesome. You can just plug and play. Love it. That's true. For someone, you might have just like hit the nail right on the head. They were like, yeah. well, how'd she know it was evening? And yeah. and then they listened and they heard all this bit. So, so they're like, oh, God, that's so boring. Was she shy? Oh, they don't even talk about books for the first 30 minutes. No, I, I just wanted to say hello and welcome. Uh, that's all, really. Hello and welcome. How's your week right, going, goodbye. George? You're having a good time. Oh, also, this is a holiday weekend. Happy Memorial Day. Well, I hope you had a happy Memorial Day because it'll have gone by the time Yeah, retroactive. Yeah, spend your Memorial Day doing something memorable. Um, I need to have a nap, obviously, so I'm doing okay. <laughs> I Maybe uh, four out of the, the six horsepower running as intended in the old brain. But, uh, you know, I'm here. Fair I'm happy play. to be here. Happy to be recording again. What do we, uh, we got anything on the news docket we want to talk about before we Oh, yeah, we, I can, well, so this is sort of, uh, you know, these episodes, <laughs> I think they kind of go back and forth. So if you ever hear something you like, you should stick with us because you never know when it's going to come up again. And <laughs> with that in mind... Today, I wanted to share, I just recently uh, read that the, uh, excuse me, the Uh dates for the Cheltenham Literary Festival in Cheltenham, England, Gloucestershire, England, um, have been announced. It's October 6th to the 15th. And the guests, they've got, I mean, I've been to this festival and the lineup wasn't this, like, (laughs) A-list, is all I'm saying. (laughs) So I'm just going to give you a taster in case you're ever in the vicinity between the 6th and 15th of October 2023. The guests include Brian Cox, who will be sharing his uh, memoir, which is called Pulling the Rabbit Out of the Hat. Um, Richard Curtis is going to be speaking. Uh, he of uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral, um, Notting Hill, Love Actually, Love Actually The Vicar of Dibley, Boy, what? No, what's that one called? About a boy, there you go. Um, As Michael Sheen said in Staged, he's quite good. He's quite good, it's, Richard It's Curtis. Richard Curtis. He's, yeah. he's quite good. It's quite good. So uh, he will be there. Also, Matt Lucas has got a new book out, and Nick Frost will also. So this kind of ties back, um, because Brian Cox and I just mentioned Nick Frost will be sharing his memoir. It ties back to our Reading Festivals episodes, and our memoirs episode. So we've got a couple yeah. of extra memoirs. Uh, Nick Frost's uh, memoir is called A Slice of Fried Gold Taste My Memories. That sounds quite juicy and tempting, I have to say. It's <laughs> amazing, is what it is. I would listen to that record. I would, well, I'm going to read that book. Yeah, so, um, you know, if, if you happen to hear this, you're in the UK, you can get to Cheltenham in October. 
knock yourselves out because uh, I'm sure that will be a cracking week. <laughs> I would love to be there. Do you want to do the other update? Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll talk strike. Yeah, yeah. We're just looking, as always, keeping an eye on the sags and the wags, the the strike of old time. Um, right now, we're looking to get uh, video game performers involved, which is amazing, but also scary. Video game studios are like notoriously cutthroat for labor practices, but you know that just speaks to how much they need the unions. But so we're uh, still looking for uh, an 11% retroactive wage increase in that uh, arena. And the strike goes on. The strike goes on and on and on. Um, I do think sincerely that the producers are fighting a losing battle. It's, I just, you know. I hope so. It's, it's impossible to pretend like you can continue without the work of these people. You know, it's like your whole... Your whole empire is built on the backs of all these people in the streets right now. I I I look forward to a big old labor wave in the U.S. We need it. Honestly, we deserve it. And the people who want it the least sometimes need it the most. Yes. Um. So I did want to just say I kind of I didn't think about this before, but I did. I was listening to something on the radio the other day. It was a new story about a guy who was I think an animator at Disney. Um, way back in the days when it was a new, you know, Walt Disney was a new guy. And I'm desperately trying to remember the guy's name because he's very well known for fighting for union rights for Disney employees and animators. Um, and he went back and forth. He, he worked for them and then he didn't work for them. He went to Warner Brothers, I think. Um, I, I I wish I could remember his name. But um, I can't. But so but what it did bring to mind for me was that the fact that there has been a very strong um, labor movement in this country in the past, historically speaking, um, mm -hmm. not least of all. Um, oh God, oh, I wish I'd written all these names down. <laughs> you know, the uh, back in the I'm not sure it was the 60s or 70s, there was a big movement for migrant workers in this country like immigrant migrant workers to try and get them um, decent working conditions with um, what was his name? Chavez. Um, and it's good that we wander off topic so much in the news. I'm sorry. But, it uh, no, it's no, that's not your fault. Cesar Chavez, his name was. And so he fought for the rights of um, migrant uh, immigrant workers in the U S and uh, so Without wanting to sound like I don't know what I'm talking about, because often I don't, I just blah, 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 blah. But um, bits that I pick up, little nuggets here and there, you know, people, a lot of people might want you to believe that, like, this country doesn't support unionised action. And it has actually got quite a long history of um, yeah. of unions and support for unions. And I... I don't, I, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think people have the right to be heard and to expect decent working conditions. Uh, I don't want to sound too political right now. I, I realise I am. But um, just saying. <laughs> Anybody who says, you know, that this is just a big capitalist country and nobody cares about anybody is talking out of their bum. And 
there have <laughs> there have been movements in the past, and there are still. T- and I think it's gathering steam, like George just said, for movements to improve working conditions for regular people like myself. Yeah. So there you go. Let's just. Sorry, that news went off on a tangent. You're okay. I think you're absolutely correct. People do try to pretend like the U.S. doesn't have a big history of uh, labor movements. And I think it's because at the same time, it has a big history of union busting. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's a there's a ton of American corporations that have done some pretty scary things uh, to stomp out labor rights. But, you know, you put you put people on tv or on stage over and over again and everyone is going to have no choice but to empathize with them when they see them out on the street it's like you know the artists will lead the way um anyway enough of the news i'm tired of talking about real time events i would like to get back to our uh escapism please oh wait wait a minute so let's just uh do our reading checking george yeah yeah what are you reading reading right now oh i asked you first oh okay well i am returning to the return of Fariz Ali by Amina mm-hmm. Ahmad because I didn't finish it because other things were um, jumping the line. So um, I'm returning oh, yeah. to that crime um, novel and um, hope to finish it. Um, but yeah, uh, that's really all nice. I can say about that right now. What about you? Be more I interested. You're enjoying it. <laughs> Oh, oh, no chance. Uh, Right now, I'm something new that I picked up recently or something old that I picked up again recently is the Three Dimensions of Freedom by Billy Bragg. Whoa. Um, Dude. Yeah, it's. Well, talk about, you know, people who support unions and freedom fighters. That is such a great segue, George. Continue. Yeah, I planned it. I I had it all planned out. Um, Billy Bragg, English singer, songwriter. Um, He's sort of like a folk punk sort of guy. And also, uh, I didn't know this, but just like, you know, uh, wrote this book about how our sole defense um, is to embrace freedom in three dimensions, liberty, equality and accountability. Right. The idea that you like should not feel under duress in the country that you live in. Everyone should be free to feel the same way and everyone should be honest and accountable about their actions and like, you know, seek seek justice in every situation. Um, It's like this. It's a I don't know what you'd call it. Like It's uh, not a novella, but it's sort of a short uh, nonfiction read. It's the, it's like very beautiful prose. Um, I've read it before, and I just felt like picking it up again. And it's doing me really well right now. Well, yeah. so let, let me... I can, I can quote you some Billy Bragg, because like when I was a teenager, yeah. he was on the TV singing songs. And um, so around about the time, you know, we were all hating on Thatcher and Reagan across the pond and stuff... He wrote a song called, I think it was called Between the Wars. I'm not sure, but I remember the opening line. It went, uh, I was a miner. I was a docker. I was a railwayman between the wars. And those are three industries in the UK that were dismantled. They were nationalised industries and they were all dismantled by Thatcher's government um, Mm -hmm. in the early 1980s. Um, So that kind of gives you a taste of the sort of things that he was standing up for. Yeah, Billy Bragg's awesome. Um, 
He's a really great activist, and I love this book by him, The Three Dimensions of Freedom. Highly recommend. It's short. You know, it's a, it's like a little, It's it feels like a, a handbook or like a prayer book. Yeah. Um, well, I can borrow great. that one off you then. Oh, yeah. Feel free. Uh, what are we talking about today, Mum? What are we talking? Let's jump right in. So uh, today we are talking about Southern Noir, which is something that I think we might mention before. In some books like that we Like 80 we've... times. Yeah. Huh? Say yeah, what? Like 80 times. Like 80 times. Okay. Um, because some of the books that we've talked about before do fall into this genre. It's it's a lot more complicated than it sounds. Like when I first heard it referred to um, when doing like reading other things and listening to writers speak and things, I was completely ignorant of it. I'm didn't even know it was a thing um but it's sort of like a a subgenre of a subgenre if you like so the original genre if you like was called um hard boiled hard boiled detective mystery <clears throat> stories um, so they hard boiled hard boiled and they were sort of like really you might say conservative but really um straightforward there there was like it was crime detective you knew who the good guy was the bad guy was good always overcame evil um and there was nothing too edgy it was kind of like you know the the westerns of days gone by you know where the sheriff rides into town and you know everybody lives happily ever after kind of that that's the impression that's what i took away from this description of hard boil now out of that came the noir genre which again deals with crime and mystery and um, crime detective sort of based uh, narratives but it was a lot edgier and the characters in these stories were sort of flawed a little bit risque they didn't like to follow the rules the stories often have strong sexual or um, violent elements generally storylines that are much more dark so the label was noir which is the french word black and this is kind of after the fact of the like we had talked about murder mysteries before yeah yeah we have this is kind of like after this is like the follow-on from that evolution of of detective stories yeah okay this is kind of like a sub-genre of like traditional mystery um fiction writing um just a little historical blur um so the term noir was first used in this context by the publisher uh, Gallimard in 1945, which is a French publisher, and they had a series of crime fiction called Serie Noire, the Black series. Although this term didn't become uh, widely uh, recognised until the 1970s when it was applied to cinema, and I'm sure you know many people have heard of uh, cinema noir. Um, more recently, if you are wait, the wait, readers, wait, wait. Like, go on. Cin is cinema noir different than film noir? No, I would say it's the same. In oh, fact, film okay, noir. Okay, cool, 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 cool. You are correcting me because film noir is actually the thing. I just had cinema stuck in my head. I don't know why. I well, it it's sort of yeah. In a different country, but um, you were speaking a lot of French, so there was a lot yeah, of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Got... <laughs> 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 oh, oui, oui. Yeah. Oh no, no. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry to all our, to all our French listeners. Yeah, really sorry about that. I just take that back. All of it stupid. 
Um, you see, we're English, so yeah, we're just so we're just balanced. trying to uh, tone it down a little bit. Anyway, <laughs> tone it down a bit, kid. Yeah, you're English. Anyway, so you're telling anyway, me about I'm lost where I am. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So the French, um, <laughs> there was a French publisher produced this series of crime novels, and they were called the Black Series. And then, so and like I say, that's a subgenre of general mystery or detective genre. There was a quote from an academic who is also an author, Andrew Pepper. Um, he is a professor in Queen's College, Belfast, I believe. I'm not sure if he's still there. That was the last reference I found for him. But he is quoted as saying in a an essay he wrote called The Cambridge Companion to American Crime Fiction, uh, he listed some thematic commonalities of noir fiction. And he said the corrosive effects of money the meaningless and absurdity mm. of existence, anxieties about masculinity and the bureaucratization, that's a really hard word to say, just saying, of public life, a fascination with the grotesque and a flirtation, rejection of Freudian psychoanalysis. That's a direct quote from his essay. I think that's from 2010, so it's a while ago, but... I got to start talking like that. I wish I could talk like that. I just lifted it. Economy of words, you know what I mean? Like every word had like counts. Was yeah, it's like, ah. lifting weight. Um, so, but you can, I mean, just like some of the words you use, kind of give you a feel for for what you're, what the authors are looking for. The sort of the corrosive effects of money. You know, it makes yeah. it feel sort of rough and ready and sort of coarse. Um, the meaningless sort of like lasting damage. Yeah, absolutely. The meaningless and absurdity of existence. Whoa. You know, isn't that the truth? I don't think we should spend much longer on this. Might get a bit depressed actually. But I think um It's the myth of Sisyphus, Albert Camus. <laughs> but I think that some of these things actually come up as we go further in into our actual topic, which isn't this. Um <laughs> as showing to be, you know, present in some of the texts that we're going to talk about. So this is specifically on this noir um, genre, and that's what he's talking about there. This narrative genre, although there were some books written um, in, I think, the 1940s in, I think, Spain, or some, some of the European countries did write some of these, but um, in this country we can trace its origins back to, and no, 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 not the ancient Greeks. Woo! I'm so happy to be able to say that. But the ancient Americans. How crazy <laughs> would it be if, like, Sophocles was, like, the detective oh! bust into the Tennessee bar? Pulled out his forty-four and shot the <laughs> barman across the head. What doth thou write about, Sophocles? I know not any of these words. <laughs> Ancient Greek noir. <laughs> I don't. Ancient know. Greek Southern American noir. Yeah, that, that <laughs> could be a genre. <laughs> so anyway, so we go back to the 1940s and 50s of the United States. You've got authors such as um, James M. Kane, who wrote a book called. Oh, I know that name. He wrote um, The Postman Always Rings Twice, which was later, yeah. about 20 years later, if it made into a movie, but it's 
It's quite well known. It's quite a sort of scary <laughs> film. Quite um. What's that? What's that? What? How's that go? Shut up! I'm not going to do it again. Mike, do your thing. <laughs> but um. Mike, don't do your thing. Leave mine in. It's it's quite sort of raw and you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like uh, threatening, sort of like a thriller, sort of. Um, so he was uh, one of the early authors in the U.S. to be recognized right in this style or this genre. Um, other early American writers in the noir genre included uh, Cornell Woolrich, Jim Thompson, Horace McCoy, who I think. Hang on. No, that's a lie. Forget that. Just ignore that. It wasn't him I was talking about. <laughs> and David Just scrub Goodish. that all from the record. <laughs> Mike, Mike, don't delete that. But if you could just put the sound of like a tape rewinding, yeah. Channel didn't speak here. Yeah, we're big bad. We don't want to. We we don't want to fix any of our problems. We just want to make them all into gags. Yeah, boom, boom. Okay, so so this um this genre grew in the nineteen forties and fifties. Now at this same time, the likes of. Our good friend who we keep mentioning, and I'm not always sure it's a good thing, but Flannery O'Connor <laughs> was writing. She first published uh, Wise Blood in 1945? 1949, Wise Blood was first published. Um, Pretty good that has since been widely recognised as Southern Noir. And so out of this genre with writers like James Kane came this sub-genre known as Southern Noir, grit-lit, rural Southern Noir, gothic noir. There are so, so many different um, words for this. And I'm sure, like, we've talked about how genres sort of overlap and, you know, it's just like one giant Venn diagram of of literary genres. But um, from what I understand it, and in my opinion, which doesn't count for that much, let's just make that right clear right now but um that if it's set and and also something else that i think it's changed over time bearing in mind that flannery o'connor was writing in the late 1940s and through uh the 1950s mm-hmm. so you know things change with time also but um it has to be set in southern america in some uh shape or form whether or not that be you know the characters came from there or the story is set right there and also, I think having um, sort of, you know, we talked about making things authentic. And I think if you're going to write a story in the South, it should reflect the characteristics of that environment and that sort of um, area of the country. So. Um, Sorry, before you go on, I just want to. Yeah, I, I something about I love you know, as we talk about all the time, when you take these frameworks and plug them into more specific examples, that's when you really see like the value that they bring to the perception. And what you you were talking before about the way that noir was defined and, and talks about that, uh, you know, the corrosive effects of money, the meaningless and absurdity and exa- uh, anxiety about masculinity and the bureaucrat. You're, wow, you're right. That is a hard word to say. Bureaucratization. Bureaucratization of public life. A basin. A wash basin. A wash basin. To put the bureaucrats in? 
thinking about that, you know, like we, uh, I grew up in Florida, like the thinking about the way that that applies to the American South specifically is like, it links up so many like neural nodes to, to create the story. Like think about the corrosive effects of money. Yeah. Oh my gosh. The economy in the South is insane people are like you know riding huge f-150s in rented houses that they don't fill with furniture you know what i mean it's like there's so much weird attitudes around money the meaninglessness and absurdity of existence listen grow up an hour away from disney and see what your life is like yeah it's weird anxieties about masculinity excuse me that's (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it, there's so much, I think, um, it's just fun to apply, you know what I mean? See the framework, apply it to a setting. The noir genre just kind of was waiting to trickle down into becoming Southern noir because it fit it perfectly almost. Well, I, I, I think, I don't know. I don't, I don't know enough about. Or they were always overlapped. No, I wouldn't even say that because I think you could theoretically like place a noir on anything, right? True. Like you could ah. do like a northeastern noir that is like yeah. set around the intricacies of like Massachusetts and like, you know, New York, upstate New York. But what I think is sometimes you just hit gold, you know, you like you combine two things and the galvanization like goes red hot like nick frost like nick frost exactly slice uh slice fried gold um taste my memories uh that's needlessly cool like why is that so cool no he's very cool so i get it uh but yeah you know like i don't want to i don't want to jump the gun i know you're going to talk some more about the specifics of southern noir but i think the particular flavor of crime that occurs in the American South and the multitude of cultural influences that can like feed into that. It's so fantastic. And we're going to talk a lot about like the way that like obviously racism plays a huge part in this. Like there's a ton of obviously like the South is a little bit defined by some of its racist crime. But also just want to like bring up the thing we were talking about, about Flannery O'Connor before is that more recently it has come out that maybe she was a little bit of a racist. Um, she wrote some, yeah, <laughs> just for the audio medium, mom's holding her hands up above her head, mouthing big fucking racist. <laughs> She, you know, yeah, I, it's, it's impossible to judge a person who's passed, but it is very easy to read letters and see, you know, racist stuff written and, and the use of the N word and dislike of James Baldwin and, uh, oh yeah. Didn't she? Yeah. She went to a party with the KKK and had a great time. Had a great time. So happy for her. What a twat. a great look. Yeah. (laughs) Who says that? But so I want to pass it back over to you. Sorry, I know I've been waffling a bit, even though this is sort of your topic. Uh, Just like looking at the evolution of Southern Noir and watching sort of its evolution past one of its forebears in O'Connor. Yeah, and I think the thing is that, um, one, you can't ignore the history, like you say. So, you know, um, 
poverty, racism, violence, uh, all have all been prevalent in the history of uh, what has been dubbed the South. And I have to always remind myself that the North and Southern states, and I'm sure that there are people who'd argue that this isn't the case anymore, but from my understanding, as a, you know, a naturalized US citizen, the Mason-Dixon line is what splits the North and the South, and the Mason-Dixon line actually runs across the top of Maryland and the bottom of Pennsylvania. Is that correct? I think that's correct, because we do um, actually live quite close why to are Why are we always talking about geography on this? I don't know. Show? I quite like geography, actually. I wasn't very good at it. Neither of us... Oh, oh, are you quite good at it? Oh, I'm oh, sorry. No, well, no, I'm, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm not rubbish at it. it. No, I'm, I'm not very good at it. at it, but I do like it. I like to look at a it... map and think, oh, that's where <laughs> that place is. Good. Oh, look at that. There's a map. That's nice. That yeah. Is. But anyway. Uh, yeah, um, it runs above, above the top of Maryland and West Virginia and Kentucky. And so there are a lot the of states west. that are included as being part of the South that unless you were, you know, well informed on this, which obviously I am not. Um, you wouldn't know. And, and until um, quite recently, I would say the last couple of years, I assumed that the South, you know, was, well, I would have thought West Virginia, but West Virginia isn't actually um, that far south. It's a little bit north of Virginia. Yeah. I always thought like Virginia definitely was in the south and then everything below there is the south. But it's it's um, yeah. it goes quite north, things that people consider the south, which I find I don't know, just weird, just weird because there are states like, you know, Maryland is quite a, on the whole, don't like to make generalizations, but quite a cool and groovy state. You know, they have a lot of really good sort of political policies and things in place that make it quite a good place to live. So it, it when people say, oh, well, but it's in the South, it makes me think of things like, you know, racism and, and all of those sort of negative things historically. Oh, because of the Civil War. Because mm -hmm. of that. Yeah, <laughs> you remember that? Of that? I don't remember it. I wasn't here at the time. Deeply entrenched history. <laughs> you said <laughs> I wasn't here for it? I mean, I wasn't here for it. <laughs> I wasn't like, oh, blooming heck, look at all this. I didn't have to don the grey or the blue, so it was great. But, um... God, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, see, George and I don't know geography or history. We are absolutely... <laughs> missing missing you, on the old humanities department but anyway we regardless. love to talk about it though yeah you know we're just playing anyway so just moving back to southern noir since that is what i'm supposed to be speaking about so it's, it is considered a genre of crime fiction characterized by gritty dark themes often exploring issues like we've already mentioned poverty racism violence and it's also known for its sense of place i.e. the South, and the Southern Gothic atmosphere, because as I mentioned before, I went off on one about 10 minutes ago, um, one of the one of the <laughs> names for this genre has been um, Southern Gothic, so, yeah. or Gothic Noir, I think. So um, that is another characteristic, is the sort of Gothic atmosphere. If you think about the architecture and the sort of... Um, buildings you might see somewhere like savannah georgia the sort of raw iron oldy built gothic looking buildings i think that gives you an mm. idea of what the the sort of um atmospheric feel for it might be sorry that doesn't sound like so no you're totally right i was gonna say uh 
sort of Anne Rice does a great job of that. Anne Rice does like really leans into the Gothicism of the South. Uh, yeah, I'm not f- fucking depressing. <laughs> it's really good, but Jesus, it's depressing. And I, I don't know. I don't think she falls into this though, because I don't. No, no crime. Only, only Horror. vampires. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So continuing on, we already talked a little about Flannery O'Connor and her, you know, great parties where she always wore a white dress. Um, but she. <laughs> was a joke. Was a joke. Yeah, I'm laughing, aren't I? I would, I would like to say that Flannery O'Connor in her relatively short life and, she, you know, she only published two novels. She wrote a lot of um, short stories, I believe, and essays. But in all, from what I've read of hers, she was a master wordsmith. There is no way you can get around that. Mm. Um, her first book, uh, Wise Blood, was first novel, was about a character called Hazel Motes, who was a 20-something um, returning veteran from World War Two, struggling with his faith. Um, I don't want to like retell the story. This isn't a retelling, but it, it it's like this young male character who had his. I think his grandfather had been a preacher, and so his childhood he'd grown up with this sort of like religious kind of commitment. And then he comes back from the mm. war, and he's questioning his faith, and then he comes across this um, preacher in a town where he lands when he returns from Europe, or I'm saying Europe, World War II, I don't think she specified, but, and he listens to this, this character who actually turns out to be a con man in the end, but he's uh, meant to be like this blind preacher and he's got his young daughter with him and he's preaching in this, in the middle of this town and Moat's response or the main character, Hazel Moat's response to it is to start preaching about the, the, um, absence of jesus in religion and how that he you know he um believes that there should be a church without christ which you know is an interesting thing but it it does bring up that sort of like sense of self and the sort of male uh what was that quote like fragile masculinity yeah fragile masculinity and because this character obviously you know you've got two things you've got his history with a religious upbringing, and then you've got his experience as a soldier fighting in a massive conflict and then returning to a country and not really knowing, you know, what his purpose is. Um, And I think all of those things kind of feed into this feeling that creates one of the characteristics of the Southern noir genre. So, um, And so I think that that book falls very nicely into it and like I said, I do, her writing is incredible. Yeah. But as we've said before, you know, whatever you, it is you're reading, you should also take on board that it's being written through a set lens. Yeah. And um, we are learning more and more about what Flannery O'Connor's lenses were like. Yeah. It is possible sometimes for good writers to have bad opinions. Yeah. yeah. And you can separate the art from the artist, right? We've said that. Sometimes. Before. Sometimes. I, I, it's not very comfortable, I don't think, to do that. No, no. Um, I think it's easier when they're dead. So anyway, it, it's, it's quite... And this novel, she described it in um, the reprinting, um, I think in 1962 or something. She described it as a, a comic 
tale or something. There's like an author's note in the beginning of the book. And she says, it is a comic novel about a Christian and as such, very serious. Now, if you understand what that statement page, means, it's... Page turning ASMR. Yeah. Sorry. He's gone. <laughs> no, it's good. I am going to say that every time now. Fine. But I, I thought this story was quite sad, really. Um, yeah. I didn't find... I mean, I so I don't know whether or not she was being... Um, not sarcastic, but... I don't know what the word is. Glib when she's saying it's a comic story. You know, read it yourself, see what you think. Maybe you've already read it and you've got a better opinion than I have. But um, I will say that this story is thick. As you, as I read it, the pictures she was painting with her words and the um, atmosphere and the environment and the setting was all, it felt like it was coming out of the pages at me. It's like this sticky, swampy, southern theme, you know, from the scene where, um, like, towards the end of the book, Hazel Motes, the um, main character, runs out into a storm, you know, which mm. eventually leads us to the, the sort of finale of the story, um, to the point where, you know, he's having a conversation with the preacher's daughter when he's, like, wanting to leave town and just get away from everything. So she says to him, well, when were you going? And he says, after I get some more sleep. Which to me, it, it you know, it just all feels really sort of like oppressive and dark. And, you know, the feeling is dark. And I think she uh, she did it really well. You can't you can't yeah. um, argue with that, regardless of what we might think about. Her. And you know what? She's not here anymore. So. Like I'm saying. You yeah. Know? Um, a couple of the. I, I have a. Go on. What did you want to? No, go ahead. I was, it was, it was going to be stupid. Go ahead. Oh, no, do some stupid for me, George, because I need to be lifted up after Flannery O'Connor. <laughs> Just, um, I listened to another podcast called All Fantasy Everything. I'm a big fan. They basically fantasy draft random topics. Uh, it's an excellent show concept, and it's very funny. Ian Carmel, uh, who is a Jewish man, 100% bar mitzvah and everything, as he says. He is talking about Roald Dahl in one of the latest episodes because they are talking about Willy Wonka. And uh, one of the other hosts, Sean Jordan, goes, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I, for I didn't realize it was Roald Dahl because he's quite an anti-Semite. Um, yeah. Uh, and I, I love the way that Ian responded to it. He said, oh, he's dead. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> What's he going to do? Hey, you stupid idiot. My Jewish ass is enjoying your books. I'm going to show them to my little Jewish children. Loser. <laughs> and I think that's, you know, that's the best way to put it. You can, you can. That's a good take. If you aren't supporting them actively doing racism, I think, you, you know, you're allowed to read their stuff. Doing you know racism? I mean? I read, <laughs> you know what I mean, though? Like, people, people are institutionally racist. Yes, Like, we, you know, like, I, I'm racist by dint of like having benefited from being a white guy in America but like if you are actively doing racism like writing letters to your friend about how you think James Baldwin talks too much uh, that's you know you are uh, you're doing too much yeah true but like so you know as long as I think if you're not supporting the people in their efforts to do these sort of things you know don't pay for Jordan Peterson 
uh, live event tickets. Don't don't buy Ben Shapiro's books. Don't don't do any of that stuff. But I don't think you know Flannery O'Connor isn't going to be cackling in some racist uh, subdimension somewhere because you read Noble Bo- uh, Noble Blood. But also, and I kind of want to move on from this because I, it's it's just like a roast session. We can just keep going off about. Yeah, um, it's you go on, George. I got nothing else. You're fine. <laughs> Sorry, I want to talk about other Southern Noir authors. Okay, and and sort of other places that you can go to for uh, for this genre because I really I love it as a subgenre. You know, growing up in the South, it's very recognizable. Okay, so I got a few more authors for you. Some older, some um, not as old. Uh, so there was an author, who, also known as younger. <laughs> yeah, that too. Um, an author who has passed away now, but it wrote his first book. It was the Gospel Singer in 1968. Harry Cruz. Um, he was known for uh, grotesque characters and almost. I hate this word. I just want to say it. Because whenever I say it, it feels like it sticks in my mouth. <laughs> so the word is, if I say it wrong, you can say it again, George. Preternatural? I, I mean, yeah, I think that's pre- preternatural. Preternat- pre- whatever. <laughs> Preternatural, okay? <laughs> Jar in violence, <laughs> okay? Preternatural. <laughs> so um, he, was, he wrote 17 novels in his writing career, and um, they very, very strongly fell into this category. Um, another mm-hmm. one was uh, Horace McCoy, who wrote They Shoot Horses, Don't They?, which was um, set against the Great Depression, published in 1935. So it, it gives you an idea of how long people have been writing this stuff, but perhaps it wasn't labelled as such. One of the things I think um, S.A. Cosby said when we saw him in Washington was, not to us personally, obviously, to the audience... <laughs> When we were chatting. Oh, yeah, when we were, we're having our sit afterwards. <laughs> was that, you know, other people put, you know, you write the books and other people put labels on them. So, you know, mm. even though we are talking about this specifically, I don't like to, um, you know, focus too much on it. Anyway, but so Horace McCoy, they shoot horses, don't they? That was uh, set against the uh, Great Depression. It was also made into a movie, I think, in the 1960s about somebody who set off for Hollywood, I believe, um, and the conflict that they came up against at that time. We're jumping to some more current examples of these authors, which I think is something you wanted to get onto, George. Obviously, we can't do this without mentioning S.A. Cosby because we saw him speak, because now we are aware of his books, and because, uh, you know, I'm going to be his number one fan. And um, It is. <laughs> we do talk about him every single I'm episode, not going to talk. So. This is going to be the last. This is going to be the last plug for him. <laughs> so the most recent. Who else we got? The yeah. Okay. All the all the sinners bleed. That was the most recent one that I read of his. Oh, sorry. And then that was um. Oh shit! I've forgotten the name of that other one about. Uh, anyway, but I'm go- <laughs> I'm going to make an attempt to read more essay Crosby. I suggest you do the same. Moving on. John Berendt uh, wrote Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, 1994, set in Savannah against a background of sort of like uh, voodoo and goodness knows what. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Wasn't that adapted? You said it was adapted. Yeah, I thought so. The film was adapted to a book or vice versa. Oh, vice versa. Sorry. You're yeah. talking about Midnight in the Garden of Good yeah, and yeah, Evil? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it was made into a film. 
Um, and it was actually based on a true story, I believe, I think. Um, a murder Is it Blacktop case. Wasteland? What? Is it Blacktop Wasteland? Or oh, Rose yes, it is. Uh, Black, Black Tarmac Wasteland? Black Blacktop. Blacktop Wasteland is the other essay Cosby that I um, have yet to get my hands on. Don't I worry. couldn't leave you hanging. No, thanks. I appreciate that. Another, you know, modern author of this genre, Attica Locke. Mm-hmm. She uh, was also um, <laughs> referenced by S.A. Cosby when we saw him at the Reading Festival. But you I are going to get a restraining order. Oh, whatever. Um, but also, I have <laughs> actually looked into her work myself. So, mm. uh, yeah. Bluebird, Bluebird was about a black Texas ranger investigating two murders in a place that the outside, and this is a direct quote, I, I think, that the outside world mostly ties to a history of violence. And if you imagine that, you know, as a black law enforcement officer in a state or a city or, you know, whatever your jurisdiction is, um, that has this history and, we, you know, I think we mentioned it earlier, poverty, racism, violence, you know, and trying to do the right thing for yourself and your community and your career and everything. You can only imagine yeah. the kind of um, conflict that would come out of that. Um, George, did you want to add some others before I? Oh, yeah. Two, uh, two I wanted to just call out just because I didn't realize sort of that these belonged to the Southern Noir before we started doing the research, but um, Winter's Bone by Daniel Woodrell famously turned into the movie that uh, Jennifer Lawrence started her career in. I don't know if that literally started, but like that was her big breakout. Um, excellent uh, story. I, I'm looking forward to getting my hands on the book. Um, and No Country for Old Men by Cormac McCarthy, which is a versi vice that's a that's a movie uh, a script. Oh, you were talking about Cormac McCarthy before. Sorry. No, 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 no. We have talked about him before. Oh yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah, we talk. Listen, there are like because he passed away not that long ago. Remember? That's true. Yeah, but No Country for Old Men was adapted into a book out of a screenplay. That's what I was. That's all I was going to say about that one. I, I do have to say I am sort of inclined to pick up work by black authors in this genre just because like all of those things all of the things that we've talked about that make the the south such a potent location for a noir subgenre it's deeply tied to racism and like that is in the American South, that is like a like a uniquely black experience, like for, you know, for the worse, like it is something that black people experience every day to this day. You know, it I don't. And I think Mr. Cosby said this as well. Like if you if the story's not good, it doesn't matter. But you can write outside of your own experience, you know, like you could be a white author and accurately portray the a black experience, a black. Yeah. Well, yeah. Or like, yeah. A, the like racial politics of a setting in a Southern noir book. But I think. Didn't he also say though, that if you've got to ask that question, yeah, then you're probably not in a position to do it or something along those lines. Yeah, if you have to if you have to go to your 
black friend and say, hey, is hey can I write this? this? <laughs> the answer is no. Nah. Um, yeah, but I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to um, try and limit it by saying that. But as I'm sort of introducing myself to this genre for the first time, it seems uh, appropriate to me to kind of honor the black voices in the arena. Yeah, and I think that um, it just, you know, really supporting what you just said is that um, the experience of a black a black person in the southern states of America is so specific and is so well documented mm. and is so yeah. susceptible to these issues that, you know, they're saying this genre addresses poverty, racism, violence, that, I mean, there are, and there are plenty of white writers who write uh this genre but not necessarily with black characters but i i do think it it's almost like you've got sub genres in this sub sub genre <laughs> you know, there go those venn diagrams again do you know what i mean uh yeah just saying um i won't say like i think that the genre you know has changed over decades from being like gritty detective mystery writing to something that addresses these questions of inequality um and i think you know flannery o'connor she wrote in wise blood because that's what i just read but, um wrote a harsh view of a young man struggling with faith and poverty but uh, we again we've said it before you've got to remember the lens that the story is being told through or maybe not maybe the megaphone that the story is being told through would be more um literally correct and in contrast, you know, having read uh, that essay Cosby book recently, his he said that the story um, was like the the gravy, and that the issues and the inequalities of diversity in, in modern day law enforcement were like the thing that he re- the message that he really wanted to get across. That was like the meat yeah. of the book, and that it, I, you know, ha- having read it, it was clearly written in this southern setting with like the you know the descriptions of the food you could almost taste it and the attitudes of all, <laughs> of the whole community in this little town in, in virginia and the weather and the rain and you know and i already said you know flannery o'connor pulled me right into that as well but it it was in a different way and um the voice was very different i think mm-hmm. um and Perhaps it's just that it's current, you know. One was written, what, 70 years ago, and the other one was written or published this year. They were both written really mm. well. They addressed powerful topics, but I think maybe... You, you've got to be careful what you say. You want to sound like a tool, but... Um, <laughs> you know, something that's written from a privileged position doesn't ring as true to me as something written from somebody who's actually experienced whatever it is they're writing about or, you know, or even witnessed, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, it's all about like where the, where the narrative is coming from. Yeah. For sure. and, And not like, again, you can write any story that you want to, but like you aren't, please do. You aren't going, you aren't, yeah. Write the story that is in your head, but know that the experience the the authenticity of like how deep you can get into that it it wanes the further you 
explore it from a uh, insincere perspective. Anyway, gosh, we've been going on about this. Who wants to hear a couple of white people talk about race this long? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, and that you know, that's not our thing. But art, as you say, uh, art reflects life, or life reflects art, one or the other. So that if you're going to talk about something in the arts, like literature, you don't really have a choice, you know. But to include yeah. things that are going on in the world as well. Just saying. Yeah. And that, I think, goes back to what we were talking about. The explosion of, like, the noir overlay. It's, like, because there is such injustice in the South, you know, when you look at crime down there and you look at, like, law enforcement, you cannot help but, like, come up against the racist history. Um, so it's sort of, they are they are intertwined. And it's not that historical. <laughs> it's crazy. No, no, no. No, it's not. You think of history as old, but yesterday is history, technically. That's so. true. Actually, this podcast is history. We finished it. But um, we're not done. We're still doing them. Okay. But um, I think this episode is in a pretty good spot. Thank you so much for teaching me about Southern Noir, Mum. This is... I really... I didn't realize I had read similar books to this, but now, like, picking up on the ideas... I, I really appreciate Southern fiction because I reckon, like I can I can sort of see what I saw growing up. You know what I mean? Like Yeah. It's a it's it's a cool way to like read about a place. And so it's something that just struck me I hadn't really thought about. Because this country is so huge. It's so huge. You can separate, you know, the the cultures quite quite clearly and, and quite strongly, you know, from one end of a nation of the nation to the other. I think about the size of the UK, which, you know, England would fit inside Pennsylvania twice, I think, something like that, because it's a small little country. Mm. There are still regional differences, and there are books that are set in the north and books that are set in the south, but I don't think there's enough diversity. I mean, there's a lot of diversity as far as, you know, ethnicity and things like that, but just, you know, the experience in the south isn't necessarily that different you you get you probably get the same amount of racism in the north as you do in the south of england i'll be honest i mean and i don't know that for a fact mm. i've checked recent numbers but um my my gut <laughs> feeling unchecked. is that it is that is the case and so it's not big enough to have this sort of subgenre but do you know what Maybe I'm going to have to check that out and it might be another episode. I don't know, because think, I mean, I think you could divide Northern and Southern Well, definitely. England. People definitely do. They do. They do. They they talk about shandy drinking Southerners, you know. (laughs) Yeah. But but I don't know if it's to the extent where you could start and and place literary genres around them. I I may, you know what? I Although, think I'm, I'm talking about what other house. kind of noirs have we talked about since doing this research? Didn't we find out about uh, uh, Nordic noir? Nord, Nordic noir, Northern like European, like Scandinavian countries. Yeah, uh, Joe Nesbo. Uh, the um, what's his name? Stieg Larsson, the girl uh, Stig with the dragon tattoo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's definitely super Nordic noir. noir. Yeah, man. So damn genres are so cool. <laughs> Um, I, you know, so I don't know, I maybe, think you can maybe kind of make a noir anywhere. You, you can just slap noir on whatever you want and, and it will be a thing, you know, just 
email us about what your favourite noir is because uh, who knows? There might be a million out there for all I know. You know, maybe there's camp noir or uh, or Canadian noir or no, I bet there is. Boston Noir. Boston. It's just crimes done with Dunkin' Donuts. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, I don't. I think it's rare that you would see as, as much of that, like, I don't know. It's, it's just like there's, there's so much crime embedded in the legal system of the South of America and definitely in the North of America as well. And a lot of it is racist that like, it's not that you couldn't place a noir anywhere you wanted and call it a blank noir. It's that Southern noir has like a whole history yeah. and yeah. yeah, yeah. There's like and a, certain there's characteristics. A, yeah. Yeah. But you know, who knows? We maybe, Watch this, listen to this audio. You never know what might come up. Um, I think we're good, George. Did you have any last closing words? I did enjoy this. Um, I know there wasn't a lot of book references, but um, we will have a list. Where do you put that, George? On Books mentioned? It's on it's on the Spotify, Spotify. description. Yeah. So um, yeah, there's it's also on the Heroes Compendium website. Yeah, which is uh, another little thing that George has got his another pie. He's got his finger in. George, you probably oh, yeah. couldn't come on pie. over. Come on over to the Heroes Compendium website for D and D homebrew and also uh, stories that we write. Okay, enough of your plugging. Thank you very much. <gasps> How dare! All right. Thanks so much for doing this research, ma'am great one no worries george um i enjoyed it as always i think we're going to call that a day night whatever it is you listen where i whatever the time is where you are um go out there and tell some <laughs> tales keep listening send us a message on spotify or somewhere because it's very exciting when that happens and uh we're over now and good night <laughs>